This is Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. Helping us in that mission today is Neil Sahoda. Neil's an IBM master inventor, United Nations AI advisor, and the CEO of ACSI Labs. We'll be talking about AI today and our new book, Innovating Leadership and Followership in the Age of AI. Neil, we are so glad that you're joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Maureen. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you also for writing the foreword to our book and contributing to the content. No, it's my pleasure. But you guys did an amazing job with the whole book. I mean, there's some excellent and really useful content out there for leaders. Thank you. In your role with the UN and other high-impact roles, what are you seeing in the space of AI, things that leaders specifically should be thinking about and integrating into their decision process? The top thing, it's actually the use of generative AI, like ChatGPT in the workplace. There's a lot of talk about, should we use it, not use it, privacy, that kind of stuff. But, you know, ZDNet did a survey recently that was interesting about the usage. Some industries have really adopted it, some not so much. But there are two really interesting statistics that stood out in the survey. And the first one is, is about a third of the employees using it for work-related stuff. Don't tell their employers they're using it. This survey, who is it U.S.? Is it North America? Is it global? Tell me a little bit about what's the population that we're talking about with this third of employees not telling their employers. That's a great question, Maureen. So this survey was actually focused on the U.S. population. It's an organization focused on U.S. labor market. And I'm sure there's actually probably some similar trends around the world. Fascinating that if you're a leader, you may not be aware of how much use of ChatGPT is actually going on in your organization. And as we talked about in the book, ChatGPT is a brilliant enabler and presents risks. And if people are using it without the guidance of their corporate policies, or if there are no corporate policies, there's a high probability that it's not being used the way the organization would want it used just to mitigate risk and liability. A hundred percent. And most organizations that I'm aware of don't have a policy yet. And they're just trying to realize now that they need something because their employees are starting to ask or they're secretly using it. And I think that's the interesting challenge because I was curious why one third of the people are not telling their employers. And the two key areas, one was that they were afraid if they told their employer, they may be blocked from actually doing it. And they found like a really useful resource. Obviously, privacy, security, client information, health information, big concern. But the other, and this was the more common reason was they didn't want to tell their employer because they're like, right now I'm looking like a superstar. I don't want them to know it's because I'm using ChatGPT. I want to use this as a competitive advantage for as long as I can. Hopefully they'll be a promotion, some pay or merit increases. And so they see it as like kind of a secret weapon. And they're actually afraid that if their employer finds out, they might actually get more work. Interesting. I was in, I attended a conference that was talking about chat GPT for resumes and similar idea over time it will be normalized and these folks may get promoted before it becomes normalized or not the conversation I think was with someone at Indeed and they said at some point in the future everyone will use chat GPT for their resumes the resume will almost become a non-useful item because if everyone's using the same tool then we're not differentiated by our resumes But until that becomes the case, that it is a significant enabler, and my assumption was part of that is if I'm using ChatGPT, dropping in the keywords, 
and making sure that when Indeed is indexing on keywords, it's going to find them. Even if the resume to a human doesn't read as smoothly, I'm going to get through the gates that someone who may be a better writer isn't going to get through the gates because if your resume doesn't have the keywords, you're bounced by a machine before anyone reads the thing. There's actually a lot to unpack here with that, that example and that when you, you know, when you try to hire somebody, you're really looking for two things. Are they qualified? Are they fit for your corporate culture and the team? And this started happening 2015, 2016, where we started to see companies reverse the process. Like, you know, normally you look at the resume, this kind of stuff, they look qualified, we'll test for that. Then, you know, the hiring manager or whoever will try to figure out if they're a fit. That process is actually getting inverted now, where they're actually using AI tools to see if they're a fit. So using things like neurolinguistics and psychographics, rather than say, okay, we have a thousand people apply, let's do the keyword search. Now they're saying like at these thousand people based on that analysis, who are actually fits, like who are at least 80% fits. And I might whittle down to 17 people. And it's like, let's go look at these 17 people and see if they're qualified. So we're kind of going down this different path, but if ChatGPT is writing your resume, people are like, can you still do that? And well, the answer is actually yes. You get people to actually submit different ways. I mean, there's talk about like doing audio transcripts. Ironically, I was being with a major HR SVP yesterday, and they were actually talking about this, that the legalities about recording interviews, right? Because they started off because people don't take great notes right away and they forget things. If you record it, obviously with the consent of the job candidate, then you actually could use that to do this kind of psychographic or linguistic analysis. But the other point I also want to bring up around the resumes is while you're using ChatGPT to do that, it doesn't mean your all resumes are created equal either. And this is actually a second big thing that came out from that CDNet survey is that 45% of people who try to use ChatGPT at work quit after one or two tries. We just said it doesn't really work that well. So again, digging into that, it's being more about the prompt, the prompt engineering. So if you write a much better prompt for your resume, you're probably going to generate a better resume out of it. Again, it may not be quite indicative of your skills and your ability to grab the story, but it's interesting that prompts will be kind of the next hot skill set, the next big thing that leaders and companies will have to be aware of, and that the output you're getting is only going to be as good as the prompt you're actually using. Which, honestly, that's the same thing with employees, right? It's just that it comes back a lot quicker with ChatGPT. <laughs> if I ask my team to do something and I'm not clear, it's always clear in my head. It's often not clear in the results I get back. At least with ChatGPT, it's clear. If I get the wrong results, it's probably me. With employees, it's not always clear, is it me or is it them? So it takes a lot longer to sort. And it still points back to the person asking for assistance, whether it's with technology or humans, needs to be good at knowing what they're asking for and doing it in a clear and concise manner. With AI, it's prompt engineering. With its humans, we call it delegating, I think. <laughs> we probably do, but this is also the thing where I think leaders need to step up. As much as these you know, technology tools are going to come in and solve everything, we know that sometimes when you introduce these tools, the business processes also need to be modified and changed. Right? A great example, you know, we were talking about ChatGPT, this has happened a couple of times in the legal world where the lawyers are asking ChatGPT, give me some 
precedent cases I can use based on like the strategy for court. And the cases they get from ChatGPT are actually made up. They're they're fake, right? The opposing counsel can't find them. The judge can't find them. And it comes out. People are like, oh, you know, it's the it's a hallucination. Why is it doing this? But if you think about it, you've asked ChatGPT to give you this. Give me court case precedent. ChatGPT doesn't know the difference between truth and fake, right? So when you say give me, it just thinks you just want like an example. So it's going to make one up and give it to you. I did something for the Bar Association recently. And I say like, you have to think about a different way of saying this. Please research and see if you can find blah, blah, blah. And people are like, well, why do I have to say it that way? That's because the, the AI doesn't know any different. And they're like, why doesn't someone fix that? <laughs> Technology and stuff can only go so far because when you say give, that can mean a lot of different things to a human being, right? You intrinsically inherently know you need something true. ChatGPT doesn't know that. So that's the big challenge. I think leaders are going to find that as Jerry by tools get more adoption into their organizations, just the way you interact with them, some of these prompts, all these things are going to be really critical. You just have to kind of retrain your, your folks on how you actually do some of this work. And that's a business process change. That's really interesting. I'm thinking of some of the research research we did in writing this recent book and yes please give me this and give me the citation where you found this and then i went back or someone on the team went back and checked to make sure that citation was real because we're hearing a lot even about in the medical arena medical studies being retracted because researchers used chat gpt or other ai related information and it is curious to me that people who are trained researchers aren't checking citations that seems like part of the role in research is you at least validate the research you're looking at to be good yeah marine however the challenge i think a lot of people have is they expect whatever answer you get from a computer it's probably right, you know? And, and I think that's the other issue. It's like, well, this is the output. It knows way better than I did. It read a zillion, you know, research articles, all this kind of stuff. And they just inherently trust it. And that's the big challenge that we have is that generative AI tools are meant to create a draft for you. It's by no means the final. There's going to be errors, right? You know, AI is not perfect. You got to go and do the, the checking, the validation. You have to do some polishing on some of it. It's not like we're turning the work effort to zero. It's just reducing it based on how good your prompt is from 40 to 70%. But it's definitely not zero. I was submitting an application for some award and ChatGPT said I was the CIO for Ohio Health. <laughs> I did not submit for paychecks, back paychecks from wherever it said I started. Just another example that it's a draft. And I think, again, as if you're an innovative leader, these are things that you have to be aware of and understand how to create kind of I hate to say it, kind of new culture of you got to take the time to still do the validation. You just can't take the raw output and call it done. And I'm not saying as a knock to employees or anything like that. It's just, again, you know, we're used to computers doing like calculations or in software programs. So if I ask a computer, hey, what's 32 plus 68? And it's like, it's 100. You just implicitly trust it, right? Now we're asking it to, you know, produce content. That's still got to be reviewed. Well, so based on the recent research and the work you're doing with clients, where do you see the biggest risks that leaders should be paying attention to? One is actually the, the usage. We were talking about kind of data security and privacy. You have to understand if you put something in one of these systems, what are you giving up? I mean, the general rule of thumb is if you're paying for it, you usually have your own private instance. The terms and conditions will say, 
your data, your models belong to you, nobody else has access to them, which is, is good. But I've also heard stories where people, again, securely using it for work stuff are not paying for it. And those actually says then, like with ChatGPT, OpenAI lays claim to your data and your models. So if you're putting sensitive information in there, it's a big exposure risk. So that's one. So there's this big debate about people saying, should we use it, not use it? And it's like, you have to understand the rules around usage. And that's not something they're used to. And if you've ever tried reading your iPhone terms and conditions or something like that, oh my God, they're thousands of pages long and even contract lawyers of 40 years can't decipher half of it. So pay close attention. If you're not sure, have your legal team review it. If they're not sure, go to the vendor and ask. I mean, get, get something in writing. I pay $20 a month for each subscription. And then on the other end, there's like CareSource, a medical provider, Ohio State, places like that have a secure private instance. And as medical institutions, that's been quarantined and all the stuff. Someone like me who's paying $20 a month, I can't imagine they have a private instance for me. Is my stuff private or not private? It is private. It actually does say if you have a personal use account, we'll call it that, it is private. It does say that. They actually started that for that very reason. It does explicitly say that your data and your models belong to you. So create an instance of ChatGPT costs nothing in the age of the cloud. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that there's a billion instances of ChatGPT, that is actually no lie. But they're not all paid instances. No, they are. The people that are using it for free are all using the same version of ChatGPT. Ah, okay. So that billion instances... That's what I heard. There's a billion paid accounts now. And that's just ChatGPT, OpenAI. Yeah, that's just for OpenAI, ChatGPT. So that's why they're, you see them rolling out the next version of GPT-5 coming up, I think, actually next month, if I remember correctly, as a closed beta. Because mm -hmm. now they have more resources and stuff. But, I mean, they had to make a huge capital cost. They just get to pot the money. But that's what's going on. And I think they're about to launch an enterprise version of ChatGPT for business usage because they were requiring even for business use, everybody had to have their own account. We don't qualify as an enterprise like IBM, but each of our people who use it has a paid account, I believe. Uh, they're trying to solve that problem because I know a lot of companies were getting upset saying that we've got 100 employees trying to use stuff, the same stuff, and they, they can't. Mm -mm. As I think we are all using paid accounts, I'm looking at our producer and making asking to make sure that we're all using paid <laughs> accounts. We are now. Um, as of the end of the day, we will all be using paid accounts. That's an evade of leadership. <laughs> That's clarifying my assumptions and making sure that we're, we're safe. Um, it, it is also innovative leadership, but yeah. I know we're using all kinds of AI and I fully support it because it allows our team to be significantly more productive. And your comment about people not telling their bosses because they look like they're brilliant. I know our team is both brilliant and gets more done with AI. That's good. You're creating the right kind of culture that's needed for organization innovative leadership. You know, I think this is where people struggle and that they're like, should we do this, not do this? I look at some of the school systems and I'm surprised where they're basically saying like, well, we want to ban the uses of chat GPT. You can't really use it for your homework. I don't know how you're really going to enforce that. And you're really impeding the student's ability to actually learn skills you're going to need for a good job. I get the need to test for knowledge, but it's like you actually need to think of new ways to test for knowledge. Again, a business process change. I remember five years ago getting interviewed by some major media outlet. Well, I should say five years ago, I get interviewed like 
earlier this year, but I said five years ago, I saw this coming and I changed the way I test for knowledge when I teach one or two classes on my alma mater. I don't have them write essays or these things anymore. I have them do presentations. I'm like, well, couldn't they use some of these tools to make presentations? Like, of course, but they still got to present the information in a coherent story and there's a mandatory Q&A. So they're going to still have to understand the material to pass the class. So one way or another, they're going to learn. If they use a tool to help kind of synthesize some of this, I'm not going to fault them for that. That's the right thing to do. That's the smart thing to do. But you can't just test the same way for knowledge anymore. Well, think about if we didn't allow people to use calculators or Google. We all have to know how to use calculators and Google. None of us, I don't think, other than knowing how to count change, does math. We use our phones or our computers or something. And same with, I don't memorize stuff anymore, not even phone numbers. I use apps. So the competence is now I need to know where and how to find things efficiently and know how to validate the accuracy and the value and synthesize it, not pull it out of my brain. So to your point, not allowing students to use it seems like then we're not learning prompts and things like that. And that's a disservice to whoever's getting educated, young or old. It is, but it's also, ironically, it forces you to understand how some of the work actually works or what goes into it. Because if you want to write a good prompt, you have to know under all the parameters of what goes into building or creating or generating something. Right? I have a friend who's a photographer and her prompts to create images, they're like three, four hundred words long. And, you know, people are, why is it so long? Why do you have to do that? It's like, what goes into making a quality image, right? You could say, give me a picture of an avocado chair and it'll give it to you. Okay. You'll make the chair bigger. You know, so you can do it about fourth, but her prompts are like, give me a picture of an avocado chair with this type of shadowing, this type of lighting, this type of aperture, all these things. She knows all the things that go into making an image. And so she has a lot of parameters. And as a result, the quality image she gets out the first time around, she says about 95% of the way of what I wanted it. But if you take this into work, and if you're a leader saying like, hey, I want you to use ChatGPT to your employees, do they actually fully understand of how things actually work for these job-related activities? And I think that's what we're seeing coming out with some of that is that they don't fully understand all the parameters that actually go into doing something. And someone just kind of clicked, maybe someone was kind of random chance, okay, it's just an error. But that's a big reason why 45% of people from that survey abandoned the use of ChatGPT because it was like the, the output was just so generic or so bad that they think it doesn't work. It's like you may not have been trained on that, or maybe it was, but your prompt wasn't solid enough. Because like I've seen people go to ChatGPT and they're like, please tell me the best way to network. That's their prompt. What does that mean? Do you get something very generic or blasé or somebody get something about computer networks. That could be cables. Attach yeah. the male to female cable link. Ensure your cables are the right length. Yeah. That's what we have to teach. It's like if you're looking for a job, you're asking ChatGPT, you should be like, what's the best way to network on LinkedIn in the Cleveland metro area for a financial analyst job in the investment banking industry? Right. That's a much stronger prompt, right? Now you're putting more parameters in, so it's like, ah, okay, now I have a better idea what you're looking for. Could you make that prompt even better? I go, absolutely. You could even name some representative examples, you know, you know, upload some examples of events or something you did in the past or saw in the past to give it more frame of reference. So the more we can actually put in the prompt, the better output it's going to actually generate, but that's something we're not used to. Intuitionally, instinctively, 
contextually, we know that we say some of these phrases to other human beings, there's a level of understanding there. What else do you want leaders to be thinking about? I know we're going to go into the book. Again, from your research and from this study and other studies, what should leaders be thinking about? They should be thinking about hybrid intelligence. I mean, this is the future of the workforce. This is not human versus machine. This is not automating people out of jobs. This is complementing our human capabilities with machine abilities. It's the million of two. Look, machines are great at crunching lots of numbers, the you know, facts, these kinds of things. Human beings are really good at the creative thinking, the, the first of a kind, the intuition, the random scattering and seeing something from that. You want to meld the two together to form something, you know, synergy, something that's a little bit better. And that's the direction is that everyone will kind of have a little AI system to help them kind of do some of their work. AI is going to probably do a little bit more of the grunt work. So rather than me have to read through a hundred, you know, research journal articles, I have an AI system that can do that and synthesize that for me in a much quicker time. And I can draw better insight from that. That's what really innovative leaders should be thinking about is how am I moving my organizations towards that hybrid intelligence? Because it's already starting to happen. Can you give some examples of what it looks like? Again, I know what we're doing. I know what my clients are doing. And I think the most progressive people are using ChatGPT and other AI systems for just a broad range of things. Write me an EEO policy because I don't have a strong HR department or a DE&I board policy or how do I set spending limits for my CEO? We're just seeing all kinds of things that would have taken someone hours to do, they get a decent draft in 10 minutes or an hour. And it really is a significant enabler, in some cases, just to do the things that organizations should be doing, but they don't have a budget for a law firm or an outsourced HR group. We're seeing at least a lot of foundational stuff happening that companies haven't taken the time to do because nothing went catastrophic. Yeah. I used to show an example of hybrid intelligence and try to find one that I can relate across industries. I'm actually going to talk about music. I'm going to take it for granted that most people listen to music, but uh, my good friend, LJ Rich, famous musician, she, you know, she's using generative AI to create new music. And so her prompts come, you know, she's coming in, she's thinking about this, like, okay, I want a song like this. She's got some idea around lyrics. Should I want to use these like four notes, this kind of melody, this kind of harmony. And then I want to do it in like reggae style. And, you know, we'll generate it and she's listening to it. She's like, mm, that sounds a little weird. Let me change maybe some of the harmony and maybe some reggae, let's try punk rock. And so her ability to kind of experiment with the lyrics and the actual music is a lot easier. In fact, she was telling me the other day that she managed to write over 20 new songs in the span of two days. And she's like, Neil, normally it takes me like 12 days to come up with one new song. That's the power of hybrid intelligence. So she's still bringing her intelligence and style to the process. It's still her creativity and all this. That's not something, you know, AI can do. It's just the ability to put together all these notes and harmonies rather than, you know, experimenting with the actual instruments and stuff. The AI is able to do that much faster, right? Because it's all digital. So you want to switch from reggae to punk rock to country to alternative. You can do those kinds of styles. If you want like, I want to mellow out the tone, you can do that. It's a lot easier to do that than trying to experiment with some of the keys and figure out the kind of right little combination there. Does she have to worry about copyright? That's an interesting question. 
her parameters to specify the kind of notes and harmony, you know, and she's providing things around the lyrics. All that stuff is really her IP and her content, right? She's not asking like, hey, uh, go have the Beatles play Call Me Maybe in the Beatles style. Can't protect that. Can't copyright that. And her own original stuff, absolutely. But interestingly enough, for people who are aware, there's a lot of concern around IP rights and in the particularly the art world, there's a lot of concern that, you know, here are some of these general BI systems. They can study a million paintings and learn a million different styles. There's a right of use to do that for training purposes. Does that mean then I, as an artist, I'm going to lose out on work and then revenue? Japan, about a, was it about a month, month and a half ago, rolled that the right of AI to use these for training purposes, they upheld it. That's going to have a ripple effect around the world courts because of, you know, reciprocal IP rights. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you gave a human being enough time, enough lifespan, they could do the exact same thing. So you can't just say because the machine can do it faster. It's not fair. So again, it's not as kind of causing some consternation in the in the art world for like, well, how do we protect ourselves? And some artists have realized, well, again, it's a business process change, right? You, people may not hire me to do the actual painting or create the actual digital artwork, but they still need my prompts and stuff on how to do this right. And that's what they realize I can sell these prompt templates. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's become more of the, the business model. It's also a bit of a cultural change, I guess, or a cultural perspective. It's funny, I've been talking around this a lot more last month in that Western culture, we look at AI and robots as adversaries. You look at like movies and books, that's how it is. It's like human versus machine. But in Eastern culture, They've always seen AI and robots as helpers, as assistants, like as tools. They don't see adversaries, we see human and machine. So Western culture seems to be wired to look for threats. Eastern culture seems to be wired to look for opportunities. And that comes across in actually a lot of management or leadership styles in organizations. And that how do you encourage, how do you create some of this environment? But the writer's strike is an interesting example of this in play in that the Hollywood writers, I think they struck a couple of months earlier than expected. They're they were freaked out when they saw ChatGPT go from 10,000 users to 100 million users in four weeks. And they were worried about the studios automating the amount of jobs. And you know, one of their demands actually is there no use of AI in film and TV production, which the video and sound editors don't like at all. They've been using these tools for a long time. You kind of get where they're coming from, but if you actually look at like Bollywood, the Tokyo film market, the Hong Kong film market, those writers are actually using generative AI, and they have been for like a year now. They found that if I use this, I can actually produce more scripts, each script is higher quality, and they're making more money. They saw the opportunity. In Hollywood, they saw the threat. It's interesting because I'm thinking of Star Wars and R2-D2, and I'm not a Star Wars expert, so I'm not going to cite everything. <laughs> but even Avatar, where the humans stepped into the robots on another planet and were able to partner with those exosuits that in the Marvel comics are used. We have some examples, a client in the supply chain and logistics space, and they do use those exosuits. If you have to lift something heavy, you don't send pick your biggest guy to go out and lift stuff. You have someone, I, I don't know if they select for stature, but using the exosuits, move the large objects. So in some cases we are using it. It's interesting that we're in some instances finding them as adversaries. Maybe it's for physical stuff we use them, but for IP and cognitive pieces, we don't. 
I think it's also a perspective thing. I mean, it's funny that we were at somebody's house the other day and they were complaining about robots and jobs taking over and Terminator time. And I saw a Roomba go around your floor. Like, yeah, so I'm like, a Roomba is a robot. I mean, are you worried about the Roomba conquering your household? And he's like, well, that that's stupid. It's like, yeah. That's kind of the thing. Are bad things going to happen? Yeah. Are bad actors going to do bad things? Yeah. But good people can also do good things. You know, and I think that's the thing. I, I get the fear of losing your job. I get, I get all these things, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I think as our job as like innovative leaders is to help our, our people actually understand that, that they're not going to lose their place, their value, and their purpose in the world. It's just going to change. Like everything has changed over time. We need to be ahead of it. There are people who will lose as we transition. And often those are going to be the people who are not willing to change. For people unwilling to use it, they will be left behind and won't perform as effectively as those who are are maximizing it. I mean, if you look at the history of the workforce, we started off as very customized, one-off manual labor, right? And we kind of automated that into manual labor around mass manufacturing to then okay, operate machines for manufacturing to, you know, ultimately knowledge work where we kind of are today. It's just like the knowledge work is also going to change. Though you spend all this time researching things anymore, just as powerful tools and assistance that can facilitate that. So it's going to shift knowledge work to more the creative and critical thinking. And that's unfortunate struggle because we don't do a great job right now of teaching those skills to people. Which circles exactly back to the conversation about university, all general school education and workforce development. I talked to a CEO or a CAO of a roofing company the other day, and they sell solar shingles. They now use drones to simulate. They fly over the space they use a drone to gather information. They use the AI to collect all the weather data over the last decade and approximate what the energy saving will be for that structure. Sewer systems use them to find leaks and test materials. Engineering firms use them to fly under bridges and evaluate structure sufficiency. So there are all kinds of ways every industry we're seeing can accelerate and improve the work, minimize the cost. And so in the education system, we need to be teaching that. Yeah, we do. And again, it's, it's another change, but we haven't quite gotten there. And I think one big problem, I know we've talked about this before, is that we think we have more time before this change happens. And the truth is it's actually happening much faster than we realize. I mean, the other is we can't conceive of all these uses, right? We have these new tools, new capabilities, they can explode your things. Like the example you gave Marine about using drones to inspect buildings, bridges. I know China uses drones. Actually, AI operated drones to look at the Great Wall of China and identify areas of repair constantly. It's like, I don't think most people fathom some of these uses. But that's also why I love the book, because a lot of leaders are asking themselves, like, well, what kind of skills should I have to lead this kind of workforce then? And you did a great job of summarizing that in the 10 core skill sets that innovative leaders are going to need. Thank you for saying that. So let's jump into those 10 core skills. I'm going to throw them out each one by one. And why don't you respond 
given your expertise in AI, where you think that's relevant. The first being communication. We talked about prompts. And in the book, we list a broad range of communication skills that still leaders have to do effectively. That's going to become even more relevant because as a leader, you have to be able to explain not just what you're doing and why you're doing it, but the impact to your employees. Especially in Western culture, a lot of people, their first reaction is like, oh my God, they're going to replace me. I'm going to lose my job. You know what that does to the workforce, the level of productivity and morale. So communication is going to take a huge onset role in actually explaining that piece to it. To build on that, you talked about process change a lot, the change management piece of helping humans define the new processes and transition from current to future. And that's going to be ongoing. We're going to be changing processes because the AIs are accelerating so quickly. To your point, this is today. This isn't five years from now. I hate to break it to everybody, but the rate at which change occurs is speeding up. So if you're just trying to play catch up right now, you're already behind the curve. The innovative leaders are already thinking about what's going to happen two, three years down the road and getting ready for it. That leads into growth mindset that leaders are needing to change not only their processes and their communication, but their actual mindset about willingness to grow, curiosity. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? That feeds straight into what we're talking around, the getting wired for opportunities, right? Looking for them and creating that kind of culture. And that's, again, very tough if people are wired for threats. So your ability to kind of open up and explore, and I'm not saying discount things like data security and privacy or anything like that, but understand what these capabilities are and finding new ways of doing this work, that's going to be absolutely essential. Because this is not about trying to fix something that's necessarily broken. This is about just saying, is there actually a better way of doing this? And an important part of that to me is knowing what to stop doing. There were things that I used to do and things I'm probably doing today that I shouldn't be doing that I have an AI companion. What was your word for it? Assistant, yeah, AI assistant. So I have an AI assistant who can attend to some of the things that I'm doing now, which is the process change and the stop doing. So next is adaptiveness. And I think you've pointed to this throughout the conversation, adaptiveness, resilience, uh -huh. being willing to change what's happening in my workplace. No, 100%. Change is coming whether you like it or not. So what's the old Marine adage? Adapt and overcome or die. <laughs> you know, so you don't have to just roll with the changes. I think innovative leaders are people that find ways to actually be drivers of the change. And that requires good adaptiveness. It means willing to modify your models and your processes. Absolutely agree. And I think you've hit on this several times. It's not just technology. It's the people and the process aligned with the technology at this point in time, the technology is accelerating, so the people and processes must accelerate. 100%. Emotional intelligence. This is interesting to me because we don't always think about the machines are getting better, so we have to get more emotionally intelligent. Part of this goes back to, especially in a post-pandemic world, it's not just about managing the performance of people, but it's also managing their well-being. And I think with so much change and most people not liking change and people who they've been at the company for 10, 15 years are used to certain things, it's even more disruptive for them. And so be able to understand, to empathize, 
that kind of push them along and help them for the change is really important. I think that's why you're going to see emotional intelligence really pick up. And I think the future of work is also revolve around more collaboration. And this is human and human and human to machine type of collaboration. That human to human means we have to get better at understanding each other, our work styles and communication styles. So that requires a lot of AI. And that's actually tougher because we're coming out of a post-pandemic world where I think we've lost some of those skills. I think especially the, the younger generations, you look know, some of the students in school, they lost some of those opportunities for social development. So this is this is going to be a bit of a hill to, to climb over. And our job as leaders is to ourselves be emotionally intelligent, but also create and foster that kind of culture with our workforce. Absolutely agreed. The, the idea of psychological safety, employee engagement, and you say coming out of the pandemic, we've got still this tension between many companies wanting employees to return to the office some percentage of time that differs with the employee's preference to return to the office. There's a significant tension. And if we're able to leverage the emotional connections we have with our colleagues, that supports our engagement and desire to be working for the organization and generating results. Otherwise, if we're treated like the machines, our felt connection to the organization goes down and hence the productivity. Uh, 100%. Next one, and we don't talk about this as much in a business context, abundance mindset as opposed to a scarcity fear-based mindset. And I think you really hit this well earlier, not using these words, especially when you talked about East and West, that if I think the machines are out to get me, I'm going to behave in a way that is completely fear-based. And instead of partnering with and being proactive and being leading edge in setting the tone, rather I'm going to sit back and be a victim of what other people do. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges, right? If people are worried about losing their jobs, there will be very few jobs for humans. That's definitely not an abundant mindset. That's one of the reasons why you want to help people understand. I'm actually reminded of Malcolm Gladwell's Bomber Mafia book. We talked about the history of kind of how the U.S. Air Force really evolved. And, you know, after World War One, the you know, planes were kind of new. The Air Force was actually under the Army. And so their leadership for people that didn't really understand planes or, or the potential value from them. And there was a very famous general who even said, like, why do we have to spend so much money on planes? I think they don't really do much. Let's just get one plane. And it's like, you know, they've got a thousand pilots going like, huh? <laughs> you want to talk about any leadership? Some of those guys realize, like, we have to separate ourselves from the Army. We have to develop a whole different mindset. And so the Air Force developed a culture very futuristic because they saw the opportunity of like, if we can improve targeting technology, if we fly in the, you know, the daytime, if we just didn't think plane versus plane fighting, and that's what they did. They looked from a perspective, like there's an abundance of resources. We can get abundance of planes, get abundance of pilots to actually make these things happen. Get wired for opportunity. Hey, if I give my employees enough time, if I create some slack in their schedule to be innovative themselves, we can really reap some of these opportunities. You have to come from that abundance perspective. Yeah, using your example, the, the idea of surveillance, what we get with airplane surveillance and now satellite surveillance covers so much more ground than you can put humans walking around. There are places where satellites are capturing intense detail 
You can't just have a guy walking around someone's backyard looking in their windows where drones and other technologic tools are now able to capture what just our army brethren could not do. The idea that technology and human data collection together back to it's not an either or, it has to be a both. It absolutely does. But I think this is a good lead into the next skill set, I think, which is domain expertise. And again, it's not a knock on the army. They're good at what they do, but because they weren't pilots, their leaders weren't pilots, they didn't understand how to actually maximize the value from airplanes. And I think that's true, especially in this day and age where everything's gotten so specialized. If you're a leader that doesn't have the right domain expertise, you're not going to understand some of the intricacies of how things work and some of the constraints, maybe regulatory, that are going to maybe handcuff you. Because like I remember when Apple hired a big retailer, was it from JCPenney or something like that, to do their stores. And you know, he basically tried to run them like JCPenney's. And that's not going to work for Apple. Apple has a much different brand. You know, you're not selling like clothes and things like that. You're selling digital devices that it didn't quite match. You didn't have quite the right understanding of the domain and the industry to be as effective if he did have it. Then the next is AI skills. So the combination of domain expertise, if I am an army officer versus a physician, where does the machine gather more information and probably read an x-ray better and yet I need a human doc to give me feedback. Now we move into the AI piece where the AI will generate solid results, but I need to know how to do that. We're not asking you to be an AI expert, machine learning programmer, or roboticist. You don't have to understand like how the tool is created. You have to understand how we make the hammer. You have to understand how to use the hammer. And that's what we really mean by AI skill sets. Whole new set of capabilities, third generation of computing, you got to understand what those capabilities are so you can understand how they can be applied and help your workforce understand that as well so they can maximize the opportunities for the organization. So the combination then of domain expertise and AI expertise then brings us to analytical decision-making and systems thinking skills. So being able to leverage what I know about my domain, being able to leverage what AI can bring me and then understanding and weighing the output. So strong analytics, then as a leader, I'm still making the decisions that I may agree with the recommendation of my AI and understanding how that ripples through my system. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I think you said this very, very important, Maureen, is that the decision-making is still the power of a person. And as a leader, you're still making those decisions. You have access to more data and make sure it's the right data to make smart decisions, but that also means understanding how some of these things work, like the systems thinking, the analytics behind it. We alluded to earlier how knowledge management is kind of changing in the workforce. It's, this is a good example of that. And you said early on, and I think this is such an important point, so worth amplifying again, that just because the system spit it out doesn't make it true. There are systems like the probability of AI reading a breast tissue exam from a mammogram. The data suggests that the accuracy of the readings is higher from an AI specifically designed to do that task than from a human. 
still we need human technicians to take the films, review what the AI's done, and either the technician or the doc then interacting with the patients. It's still the AI is flagging something. If it sees something on the X-ray or the MRI, it's flagging it for human review, saying, like, I think this might be cancer. So there's still the human coming in, validating and vetting that this was actually done properly, and is this really cancer or not? Yeah, what we don't need to do is be misdiagnosing either positive or negative and literally upending people's lives. That is the reminder that no matter where we are in the system, the AI answer is a recommendation that we take into account in our decision-making. It isn't, quote, true. 100%. So the next one is creativity. We've talked a lot about skills and decision-making. You've mentioned making music. You've talked about photography and image creation, that having an AI assistant can really accelerate, and we need to still attend to protecting our IP. We do, but I also think one of the key things here is to understand that hopefully we're freed up some time to be innovative, but also realizing that because we have new tools we never had before, it does allow us to do the work in a different way. And can we explore that? Like, because where you brought the example of people using ChatGPT to write their resumes, when it was first done, that was very creative, right? No, no one ever thought about doing that. It's actually an ingenious idea. It's becoming more commoditized as it happens over time. But those finding those types of opportunities requires creative thinking. You know, it's almost like looking at things through a different lens. Yeah, absolutely. I have a client who has tested humans writing ad copy and an AI program writing ad copy, the AI written copy is testing better in A-B testing. So interestingly, again, there's that partnering that it's not creating things without being prompted, but when prompted well, it's creating content that exceeds human-only activities. That's a great example. If you add the human and machine working together, it'll top just the machine-created We've actually seen this in chess and that it was a 97 Deep Blue beat Kasparov and machines got so good at playing chess. It was like, no human can ever beat them. But then we found that a human partnering with an AI system could beat an AI system at chess. So now you have leagues where you have a human and an AI partnering together, playing against another human and AI. So again, it's that idea of hybrid intelligence is really the top. So that's where we want to get to with creativity. That's going to be my word from this interview is hybrid intelligence. <laughs> so let's go to the last one then, the risk management. Being aware of things like putting things out on ChatGPT, the non-paid version, we work with private airline. I have a fractional interest in a plane so that I don't have to share my manifest publicly. If my schedulers go out on ChatGPT, trying to optimize the schedule and we see that these six people are flying to see Warren Buffett and he's interested in acquiring a company, that becomes problematic. As an example, there are just so many examples of formulations in a chemical industry or any number of proprietary items that if people are sharing them inappropriately so that they can do their work, they're not recognizing that information is shared. Again, we have to do our proper due diligence, making sure we're safeguarding the sensitive information. But you know, one thing I feel compelled when it comes to any statute of risk at any time is risk doesn't mean bad or good. Risk just means uncertainty. 
we've talked about by culture, Western culture, we're wired to look for threats, and we should. We should absolutely do that. We should not forget that we should also be looking for opportunities, threats and opportunities. That's a big shift. That's where innovative leadership really needs to also step up because we are not good at looking at positive risks or trying to find positive risks. That's a brilliant way to wrap up is for our listeners to be thinking about leading in the age of AI presents us with a broad range of opportunities to solve problems that we could not have solved in our lifetime without quantum computing and AI. And now we'll see disease solutions and cures. We'll see movement in ESG and other areas, and we will also create additional problems. That's human nature. We do both good and bad, right? It's just who we are as a, as a species. I don't mean it as a knock on us. Again, we have the chance to really accelerate things like precision medicine, you know, improve education, improve accessibility of you know, public services. At the same time, the stuff could be weaponized or overly commercialized where we can actually limit access to some of these like health solutions because they're just probably expensive or they're restricted for some reason. It's always a balance. As leaders, that's what we always have to think about is what's the right balance. Neil, thank you. Where would people find out more about you? You can always come to my website, which is just my name, neilsahoda.com. You know, I put out a lot of information. So if you're wondering what's going on, you can check that out or you can contact me. There's a contact form on there. Very active on social media, particularly LinkedIn, Instagram. I guess it's X now, not Twitter anymore. But I do publish a weekly LinkedIn newsletter that I encourage people to subscribe to if you want to see what's the latest going on with not just like AI, but emerging technology and the impact on business and industry. Which we highly, highly recommend. The name of the book, Innovative Leadership and Followership in the Age of AI, a guide for creating your future as leader, follower, and AI ally. So we are talking about the thing you referenced, that it's not our AI overlords, rather it's how do we proactively create partnerships with AI in a thoughtful way. To our listeners, thank you for engaging with us. Please like our podcast, share it, and get the book. Be proactive. Thank you very much, Neil. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute, working with companies that recognize the need to upskill their leaders and transform their organizations. What worked yesterday won't work today, and what works today won't work tomorrow. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive, elevating leaders to succeed, and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us.